Welcome to For the Church, a podcast for the flock of Zion Presbyterian Church in Columbia, Tennessee. We want to help you think biblically about everyday matters. Zion Church exists to join Jesus in his mission to reach people with his gospel and then to equip his people to worship and serve. I am Paul Joyner, the senior pastor. Our regular conversation partner, John Kelly, can't join us today. We do have Keaton Paul, our assistant pastor of student discipleship, with us. This season, we're focusing on theological topics that are important foundations for the church. These will be theological topics that need to be deeply installed as bedrock truths for the followers of Jesus. Today, we're going to do something that I've been excited about. Uh, We are going to have a conversation with um, one of my friends, Cam Clausing, um, on a continued sort of sub-series on why study theology. Here's our premise. Everyone has a theology. Being made in the image of God means that we are made to run off of revelation. We simply can't operate without a theology. And the hard thing that we often find as we walk with Jesus is that we have our stated theological beliefs and our actual theological beliefs. That is, we say that we believe God is sovereign, for instance, over all of life, but then we worry and fret. Or we say that we believe in the doctrine of total depravity, that every human being is corrupt in every part of our being, but then we get surprised when people actually act like sinners and wrong us. And so since we all have a theology, we are all theologians. The question for everyone is always twofold. Does your theology match God's revelation? And secondly, do you live in light of it? So today we have a special guest, Cam Clausing. Cam is the lecturer in applied theology at Christ College in Sydney, Australia. Um, Cam earned his PhD from the University in Edinburgh on the Dutch theologian, Erman Favink. So Cam, let me ask you this question first, just to kind of get us out of the gate. When did you first realize the benefit of studying theology? Uh, well, it's a pleasure to be with you guys. Um, I, uh, I always love seeing your beautiful face, Paul. Um, and Keaton, it's been a pleasure to get to see your beautiful oh. face. <laughs> um, when, did I, when did I first start uh, understanding the benefit of studying theology? That's a great question. And honestly, I think that it would have been when I was 14 or 15 years old. Um, I, I remember our, I, my, my family had moved across the state of Wisconsin. We're from the north. Uh, and uh, and we moved, my parents moved from one side of the state to the other side of the state. And I was going into high school and kind of had this moment of going like, okay, I either need to take my faith seriously or I need to uh, give up on the whole Christianity thing altogether, and I couldn't really imagine what the world would be like if I kind if I stopped being a Christian. Like if I was just like, yeah, I'm done. Um, so went to church, said, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna be, take Christianity seriously. And at that point, the church that we started going to had, uh, had brought in a new youth pastor, and this new youth pastor was fr- uh, fresh out of uh, out of Bible college. And uh, as with anybody fresh out of Bible college, when you've learned a little bit of Reformed theology, all of a sudden he's teaching uh, on the five points of Calvinism to a bunch of high school students. And I remember saying to him, like, yeah, I don't know. That can't be true. I'm like, I have a free will. I can do whatever I, I can choose God or not choose God. And he goes, and he said to me, go read Romans 9 and Ephesians 1 and get back to me. 
So I went and read Romans 9 and Ephesians 1 that night. And the next day I saw uh, my friend Dale again. And I said to Dale, okay, you're right. God chooses us before the foundations of the earth, but I don't get it. And, uh, and from that point, uh, at that moment, he, uh, he got me a copy of R.C. Sproul's uh, Chosen by God. And uh, that started me down, um, down a track of buying books, becoming, becoming an addict of sorts, and buying every book that I'll never read, and, uh, and, and just reading vociferously inside of, um, voraciously, not vociferously, voraciously inside of theology. I, I read, the next book I read after that was John Stott's Commentary on Romans. I didn't realize you weren't supposed to just read commentaries all the way through. I thought that that's, what, that's how you read a commentary. Like you, it's a book, so you just read it from start to finish. Um, and, uh, and I just started, yeah, I just started reading all over the place. And it became the thing that like, I, I became pretty convinced, yeah, this is what I want to do with my life. I want to, I want to study this. I want to read this. I want to, I want to, be, I want to be thinking about these things. Um, well, uh, you said something at the beginning of that that made me think of this follow-up question. You know, you, you are trained as a systematic theologian. So how would you define um, systematic theology? That's a, I mean, that's a great question as well. I, I was actually trained not to say that's a great question because then when there's a bad question and you don't say it, people know that you don't actually think that it was a good question. <laughs> <laughs> so you're better than me because Keith knows this. I'll look at people and go, I don't answer bad questions. <laughs> I tell my students at Christ College, there is this good teaching pedagogy tells me that there is no such thing as a, as a bad question. But there actually but there, is. But there are. <laughs> and you'll ask them and I'll just say, good question. We'll get to it later. <laughs> <laughs> that's Um, so no I mean uh, that's a great it's a great question because I actually was just last week at uh, Covenant College uh, and and they asked me to teach a class one one day just to help some students understand what the role uh, what what my job was and I, I broke theology up into really four different categories you have exegetical theology which is really just going and studying a text. It's, it's saying, okay, I'm going to look at this particular text right here and only this text and nothing but this text. Uh, it's oftentimes what a pastor does on a Sunday morning as he's, as he's prepare, uh, uh, during the week, not necessarily on a Sunday morning, as he's preparing a sermon. He goes, okay, I'm going to look at this text and I really want to know what this text has to say. And then from there, you have biblical theology, which is then taking that one study of that one text and going, okay, how can I understand how that text and, and the themes that we find in that text develop throughout the rest of scripture in kind of a progressive way. So kind of seeing the storyline of scripture and how, how we move from, uh, from creation to fall to redemption to consummation. And, and, then, and then after that, we have what we'd call systematic theology, which is what I've been trained in as, as a theologian at the University of Edinburgh. Um, and systematic theology is, uh, is, is doing something similar to biblical theology in that we want to look at the whole Bible but instead of looking at how the whole Bible develops a particular theme, like, um, like let's say, uh, the theme of marriage and how like it progressively becomes goes from marriage in the garden to the marriage supper of the Lamb, we go, okay, I want to look at what it means to, to what what it means uh, to say um, God. <laughs> 
and then we say, what does the entire Bible say about God? And we then put that together into a system, um, thus systematic theology. And, we say, and, we, and then we try to develop a system that says, hey, how does all of this function and how does all of this fit together into one coherent system uh, through which we can actually end up uh, understanding how the, the, how the Bible is doing what the Bible is doing. And then after that, we have practical theology, which is really saying, okay, now how do we think about how these things uh, apply to the life and mission of the church here and now in this place and in this time? Yeah, you. I think what got me thinking about asking you that question is something that I've been thinking about lately. Um, Bobby Jameson, borrowing from John Webster, talks about um, that the Bible itself pressures us to systematize mm-hmm. its teaching that the, the kind of built in you did it okay well if if Ephesians 1 says this and then Romans 9 says this if I need to think like the Bible I need to begin to combine these things yeah. together um, so that I can think biblically um, and that <clears throat> this isn't something that we're kind of artificially imposing on the text but the Bible itself is pressuring us to put together a system yeah yeah, I mean, Bavink talks about this as well. Um, I, uh, I've just been reading a, a manuscript for a book that that's going off to the publisher uh, this week, and um, one of the things that I, I keep that I keep reminding myself of that Bavink says is that um, the Bible itself does not give us any doctrines. Um, but it gives us all of the material to develop the doctrines of the church that, that there is no, uh, he uses the language of dogmatics. There is no systematic theology itself in the Bible, but everything's there that requires us to make a systematic theology because ultimately the Bible isn't given to us to just pair it back to, uh, to God or to pair it back to each other. Like we aren't, we aren't given the, a verse like John three sixteen just to say, okay, well, John three sixteen for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Um, but to do something with that more, more so it's, it's to inhabit our lives. And part of inhabiting our lives is, is learning how to figure out how does John three sixteen fit with the rest of the testimony of revelation. Yeah. And I think that's good because I think, you know, as, as you're talking, I'm even thinking like, this is, this is just, this is the way the Bible works in all of life. Um, is it's, it's, it's constantly forcing us to react to it in a way, um, that we are more and more faithful to God, whether that's in wisdom or the basis of wisdom in um in learning what god actually teaches about us this world and himself so that we can can move out and do it as part of that pressure is you you can't just isolate a text you're not you're not being faithful to scripture if you just recite what the scripture says you actually have to to be fit, what God wants for us to do is to take his word and employ it in life which demands at some point putting the parts together to form holes. Yeah. I mean, I've been this, uh, this last year, um, I've been reading, uh, I read, um, early in the year, I want to say a book by Jeff Dryden on, uh, on how to read scripture. And, and one of the points that he makes, and I think that this is one of those points that we don't think about much is that, um, all of scripture is in a sense, wisdom literature, that, that, in fact, a, as we read Scripture, um, we, we like to come to it and say, okay, well, here's the indicative. This is what God, this is what, uh, these are the, um, the doctrines, if you will. And then here's the imperative. Now, here's what you do. And, and, and Dryden, in his book, wants to say, 
no, that's a false dichotomy. Like we can't actually break those two things apart and pretend like, okay, I have the, I have this doctrine here and I have this as if, as if uh, doctrine isn't, isn't part of wisdom and as if uh, commands aren't actually doctrinal. Um, but, but that, in fact, these two things always go hand in hand. Yeah. And part of learning how to read scripture is learning how to put these two things together. And that's really what systematic theology starts yeah, to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was reading Jesus the other day. He says something similar. <laughs> <laughs> when he says, you know, the wise man, the one who builds his house on a firm foundation that the waves can't crash is the one who's actually a doer of God's word. Mm-hmm. Um, right, they, I was reading James. He says something similar to that. Yeah, as well. I was going to say that's because he got it from Jesus. <laughs> Um, but you know that, and I, and I think this kind of gets down to the everyone's a theologian is, um, you know, even the the smallest child um, when you when you begin to read God's word to them, and maybe this is what we often lose is there's then a fascination with, well, if it said this and then it said this, and now they're asking questions mm-hmm. because they're trying, they're feeling the pressure to put it together. Because if this is what God has spoken, then I want to I want to actually learn what it means and how to apply it to life, and they're putting it together. Um, and there's there's no one who's being faithful to the scriptures who's not doing the work of theology. And it kind of you're either subconsciously doing it or you're consciously doing it. And if you're consciously doing it, then you're kind of doing it in dialogue with history with the creeds and confessions, with other people in your lives, in your local church. You're kind of talking about these things so that you can live more faithfully to Jesus, so you can think more faithfully about him and his word. Your heart can be engaged. I mean, it's all of this stuff. It's just intensely practical. Yeah, I might even push even farther and say that, um, I mean, I think that your first comment, no one, uh, everyone is a theologian is true, whether you're, whether you're trying to live faithfully to Jesus or not. So yeah. whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, you're going to live in light of God's revelation. Yeah. And, and then it's the question of how, how faithful you, how faithfully you're going to live in light of to God's revelation. And everyone's, everyone's systematizing the information that you have yeah. available to you. I mean, it's just, again, it is just kind of what we do, whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian, you're putting the dad, you're always putting the dad together. That's what I talked about yesterday and, in the sermon, yeah, it's kind of, we, not only do we all have, not only do you do that, but we do it around a story. Mm. Um, we all do it around a story. Um, and that story then provides the interpretive grid for, for putting the data, but we're just always constantly because we're natural born interpreters since, since putting together in a systemic fashion, any of the data that we have, we're trying to look for the connections and build it. So you cut Keaton, here's my question. You deal with high school students. Mm. Um, what hunger do you see amongst them for systematic theology or just doing theology? Um, it, it, it does depend quite a bit on who, who the person is, especially if you use the word systematic theology. Um, I, my junior year is the year that I, we spend the whole time working through um, systematic theology and now working through Bobbing's guidebook. Translated by Ken Clossing. Um, <laughs> so get you a copy of that. Um, but so if you use that term systematic theology, there will be two really, really nerdy kids that I get along with really well who light up like a Christmas tree and are so excited. And then the rest of them are like, oh gosh, Mr. Paul's going to go really hard this year and he's already we already know he's going to be on you know 100 every day way too excited about this um 
But it's interesting, so if you use the term systematic theology, a good chunk of them will just totally tune you out. But it's interesting how many of them are seeking constantly to to work out the reality of God in the world that they live in. They're trying to put those two things together of um, life and truth that they've been taught, hopefully, since kindergarten, if they've gone to design their whole life um, and trying to work out how, how are these things going together and how, how do I you know kind of fit these things as a person that lives in a world that's constantly saying everything you've been taught is not true mm. and you get to be your own God. Mm. Um, that struggle is a great struggle that I love watching them work through and helping them work through. Um, and I think there's a, there's a big need of, of showing kids that I actually, you really are a theologian because you're trying to work out that reality and um, you're, you're doing what the wisdom literature is calling us to do. And all of scripture is calling us to do is to live as, as the creatures in a created world who it's been made by a, a glorious triune creator. God. Let me pivot. Um, Cam, cause uh, Keaton mentioned that we're using your, translated book i almost said your book your translated book of herman bovink um and you know keaton and i are big herman bovink fans even before i'm a cam clausen fan um, actually i've liked you for a long time but i like you even more after you got your phd because now you're my go-to resource on all and i things. give you i give you disappointing news when you ask me you ask me about about you biographies do. you are completely unhelpful like all like all phd people you're completely unhelpful in your field well it depends <laughs> uh you know it's that it's that inverted curve that the more you know the more you realize "Ah, it's just muddier now than than ever was before if you want clarity you have to know very little so yeah i introduced you sort of tongue-in-cheek when you preached a couple weeks ago as one of three bovink scholars in the world there are five of us (laughs) (laughs) we are many (laughs) um and uh and I, you know, I said that tongue in cheek because I realized that the average person in the pew just has no idea. They they probably have been heavily influenced by people who have been influenced by Bavink. But can you tell us just maybe um, who Herman Bavink was and why you think he is important to the church today? Yeah, uh, I mean, Herman Bavink was a late nineteenth, early twentieth century Dutch theologian. Um, a close friend of another theologian, I mean, really just a polymath, uh, Abraham Kuyper, who um, was a theologian, uh, the editor and uh, of a newspaper, the prime minister of the Netherlands. I mean, the guy did pretty much everything. It, I, there was a there was a celebration of Kuyper's life at one point during his life, which would be weird. Um, but uh, a newspaper columnist, unless you're Kuyper, unless you're Kuyper, <laughs> he did not then, find it weird. Then I'm he sure. liked it a lot. <laughs> Um, and, he, and he thought, why aren't they doing this more often? <laughs> um, it's about time. <laughs> but there, there was a, in this newspaper uh, column, they said that there, there wouldn't be one page of Dutch history that did not have the name Kuiper on it. Um, but Bavink was less so of that, though even to this day, you can, you can go around the Netherlands and you can find Bavink high schools and Bavink streets uh, throughout the Netherlands. Um, 
Bobbink, it's a Dutch theologian, late 19th, early 20th century. He, um, he wrote a four-volume magisterial work called Reform Dogmatics, which really, for my money, is um, after Calvin, the, the most uh, important systematic theology written uh, in, in the Reformed tradition. Um, he, 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 he's important, I mean, not only because he wrote this incredibly influential, uh, reform, uh, dogmatic uh, theology, this systematic theology, but he's also important because he lives at a, at a moment in time wherein the world is changing. Um, one, uh, one author says that, uh, the, this time in history, it, people were standing uh, and it felt like the world was quite literally shifting under their feet. Um, and you think about all of the different, uh, all of the different innovations that happened between the late 19th and early 20th century, all the way up to, uh, the first world war. Um, so he lives in this time in the Netherlands where all these things are changing. And on top of that, you have the, the rise of secularism and, se- and the secularization of the Netherlands uh, to the point where in, by the time Bobbing's life is over, I mean, the, the Netherlands is, is on the road to being thoroughly secularized. If not, be, if not, I mean, you could probably say at the, at that point, the culture is thoroughly secularized. So, so what Bobbing is really struggling with and for the, for the, the majority of his work is really asking the question, how can I remain orthodox? How can I hold fast to the confession of my, of my church and my faith while living in a modern world and being modern? Um, there, there are really two equal and opposite pressures that are, that are pushing on him. It's, it's a, it's a retreatism in a, that, that retreats into piety and says, okay, I'm just not going to worry about the world and I'm going to continue doing theology like it's been, like it's been done for the past, uh, 200 years ago. Or there is the other branch that's saying, no, just secularize your theology, become liberal, uh, become modern. And Bobbink is saying neither of these two extremes is, is okay. We, we live in this particular time and place, so how, how do I remain both orthodox and modern? And, and I think that that's, I mean, this is really the question that I think um, every good theologian struggles with, every good, I mean, every good Christian struggles with. How, how, do I, how do I remain faithful to what I believe while living in the modern world. And, and I, I mean, I think we feel this, we feel this pressure even now inside of, inside of our churches as we think about all of the ways that the world is changing around us, so whether it be uh, things related to, um, to uh, sexual identity or, uh, or nationalism and Christian nationalism. Like, as Christians, we're constantly asking the question, what does it look like to be a faithful, orthodox, Bible-believing, reformed Christian and inhabit this world without, without, uh, without either retreating from it or uh, capitulating to it. And Bobink is Bobink yeah. is walking that road. And I and I you know I find I find Bobink personally has been very helpful, um, knowing sort of the landscape that he's in. I have found him, you know, really helpful in that he's just got deep, deep, deep roots in the Bible, mm. and then he is so aware of the issues that the culture is asking around him that he's constantly trying to engage without having to move from the scriptures. Um, Here's a question that I think that you brought up, and I I really had my notes um, to ask you, because, you know, I think part of it is, you know, we are experiencing a massively shifting landscape um, that is now the new normal. Um, And, and, you know, Christians are reacting in a, 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 
in, in, in at least one of those ways, you know, sort of the retreat and, you know, you know, see no evil, hear no evil. We're just going to be in our own, our own kind of place and just ignore. And then the other extreme is we need to regain, you know, the political institutions, the mm. cultural institutions. And if we do, everything will then be fine. And when I, when I hear that kind of talk, I think that sounds very ideal, but it sounds historically naive. And I always want to try to take them back to the time when Kuiper, you know, was the leading media figure um, of the Netherlands, when he was the prime minister of the Netherlands, and he had control of a major in, uh, educational institution. So at least three pillars of any society were held by, you know, highly reformed, strong um, followers of Jesus. And yet within, you know, a generation, the entire country secularized. Why do you think that is? <laughs> there you go. Nice and easy questions yeah, like yeah. that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, because I, I, I sort of want to, I, I mean, I think what I'm going to do is maybe knock down a little bit of the idealism yeah. with some historical context. Yeah, I mean, I... <sighs> Maybe to moderate some of our expectations with some historical context. You know, a softball question. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's a, that's a difficult question. You have question. a PhD, right? <laughs> what, I can do this to you. So, this is really, that's really complicated. Um, <laughs> it all depends. <laughs> it all depends on how we look at it. Now, I, I mean, it's, it, it is a, it's a difficult question. And, and I think that there's, there, there are multiple factors that are, that are playing into this. Um, part of it is the fact that... Um, Part of it is the fact that that before Kuiper even has control of any of those things, the process of secularization has already occurred. Yeah. Uh, I mean, so um, coming out of out of the, the University of Leiden, which is the leading and oldest university in in the Netherlands, um, even Bavink's um, PhD supervisor would talk about the need to secularize theology. Um, there, there had, by, by the time Bobink is working inside of, in, inside of the academy, um, and Kuiper is setting up his free university, uh, before Kuiper even becomes the prime minister, uh, there's talk about the fact that the church is basically useless. Like the only thing the church is really good for is, uh, is to, um, help the state a bit and do diaconal ministry. And even the state can do those things better than, than the church can. Um, so I, I think in some ways, like if I, if I was to diagnose it, in some ways, the reason that, um, the reason that secularization uh, takes such a strong hold in the Netherlands is because the church fails to be the church. Um, there, there's a, there's, uh, there's a, a lack of being that prophetic witness in, this, in society. Um, I, I'm, I'm, I don't want to go so far as to draw, the, that, draw, draw too much of a parallel to, to the American right. church situation. I don't, want, I don't want to say, okay, and just like in the American situation, they wanted to have control of the institutions. Yeah. But I think more in the, in the sense of um, there was more of a, an interest in Bovink's, there was, a, there was a push and pull inside of Bovink's denomination in the Netherlands over a retreatism from the society and trying to be culturally engaged. And I, don't, and I think that being in that middle road of trying to figure out where to be ends up causing the church's witness in society to be uh, weaker. 
And how much, how much, if I remember my history, they were also dealing with the level of nominalism in the church prior to that time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that was probably more in the actual national church. Yeah. Um, inside of Boving's denomination, which, I mean, uh, yeah, which is, which is the, I mean, the evangelical. The small remnant. Whatever that means. Yeah. Um, whatever, like, if we're going to use anachronistic terms, they were the Bible-believing evangelicals uh, in the Netherlands. And, but... Um, they're small, yeah, and they're and they're beleaguered, and they're and they're definitely marginalized. Yeah, and I think you know because I do think when I think it's about just the again, not, maybe not even our own cultural moment, but just sort of the history of the of the church. Um, when you had said they they sort of failed to be the church, that in in many ways you know sort of nominalism or Luke being lukewarm or not wanting to apply Bible to all of life or do theology that actually led to practice. That has been the sort of the constant struggle um, since you know Genesis three, um, <laughs> but throughout the ages, which I think you know in some ways does does sort of make the um, the whether it's you know Christian nationalism or cultural transformation, whichever end of that spectrum you're on, it does make the endeavor very difficult. Yeah, and maybe you know it's like it's the kind of thing that on both ends of those things. Um, it, um, you know, when I hear people talk about, it, I think, uh, Keynes heard me say this, uh, you can't even change the culture in your family. Mm-hmm. Um, like, why are we talking about beyond that? Um, it's so very difficult to change anything. Um, and especially when you're dealing with, you know, lukewarm nominal people who aren't willing to die and go out and serve others. I, I often just say, I often say like when people want to like are bemoaning the, the state of the culture and wishing that more Christians would just take over these uh, institutions. I say, because we've done such a great job with the church <laughs> that we should really be, we should really get more influence in society. Well, and I, I, I constantly look around at the church and go super healthy things are going on there. <laughs> well, and I, you know, in some of these discussions, I, I just follow myself. I find myself like slinking in my side myself going, I don't even do very good cultivating my own heart. <laughs> I'm not sure I can, I can go I don't think I can scale it up as big as you're thinking about Mm -hmm. scaling it. There's something else that you said that I often run into in these discussions as well. And that's, you said that the, the sort of flow of secularism was so great that um, it was almost an unstoppable force to think that at any moment. And I, I'll often use the analogy, you know, here in the States, you know, if you want to know why, um, the levees are breaking in New Orleans, it beca- it's because eight months ago it, they had torrential rains in the Mid Plains. Um, and if you think you can stop that problem at the last minute, you sort of are, are ignorant of how far and fast these things are moving um, and that whatever we're seeing at present manifesting itself in the culture started hundreds of years ago and has got so much torrential force that now that you're aware of the Debbie, the levees breaking, the waters rising, um, you just have to realize that it's going to take about that long to fix some of these problems. Um, there are no quick and easy fixes to it too. So there's that sort of individual we're fighting against things that we aren't equipped to fight against. And then the more global, we have to recognize exactly what it is that's yeah. moving in the world. Well, I'm building off of that, and I'm really curious about this question because, Cam, you do have a really interesting perspective in in the fact that you've been so many places and studied so many different eras of the church, including Bovings, but you've also served, you know, in Middle Tennessee, 
And you've also been a missionary, if I'm not mistaken, in Colombia, not Colombia, Colombia. And, and now you're in Australia. So you've seen the church in a, in a global setting in a variety of cultures. And so, you know, one question is, how, how would you describe the state of the church um, between Australia and the United States in particular, and maybe even compared to, to the Church of Bobbing's Day? <laughs> I mean, I think we're, um, the church is always facing the same challenges, just in different contexts. Um, so I, as I think about the church in Australia in particular, um, Australia is a, if Australia was ever a Christian nation, it's definitely a post-Christian nation now. Um, I think there's some debate over whether or not Australia has ever been a Christian nation to begin with. Um, but we're definitely post-Christian. Um, we're highly secularized, uh, and, um, and the church in Australia is small. Uh, it's, it's tiny, and, and then the Reformed Church in Australia is even smaller, and then the Presbyterian Church in Australia is even smaller than that. So, I mean, we're, we're, a, we're a tiny minority that, uh, that's trying to live faithfully. I, I think that um, the difference between particularly the U.S. and Australia is um, there is at least in the U.S. some semblance of giving the church a hearing, uh, in a way that, in a way that, in, in broader culture, whether I mean, whether it be in, in government or in um, just in, just talking to your neighbor, that that's a it's a normal part. But to be a Christian in Australia is to almost like you have a second head. People just kind of stare at you and they're like, "Oh." Like I, so my my daughter goes to a really high, a really nice private Christian uh, private church school that's run by our denomination. Um, she goes there because I get 75% off because I'm a, mem- I'm a minister in our denomination. And, uh, and I'll, I'll often go to things where um, there are other parents there and they'll ask me what I do for a living. And I'll say, well, I'm a minister in the Presbyterian church. And they just sit there and stare at me. And I go, it's okay. We don't have to talk about it. And they're like, okay, cool. <laughs> and, they, and we move on. Um, so, I mean, I think that the, the, as I think about the state of the church in Australia, it's, it's just very, it's, it's, it's a very different world in which I inhabit. Um, when I think about the state of the church in, in America, though, I think that we inhabit the same world mm-hmm. um, in, in that I think that uh, we, we inhabit a highly, like, even in the U.S., we inhabit a highly secularized culture um, with a veneer of Christianity. And sometimes, sometimes I wonder, when I ministered in the U.S., sometimes I wondered if we actually wanted people to become Christians or if we wanted to get back to the 50s where people just pretended like they were Christians and we'd be happy with that. Um, and, and I think that that's one of those things that, 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 has, that always struck me when I, when I lived here in the States. I, I, I often wondered, like, do I really want my neighbors to become a Christian or do I just want them to stop acting like a pagan? Yeah. Mm. You know, I was, uh, I was thinking as, as you were saying that, <clears throat> you know, I had a college ministry um, for years on um, 14 years ago and, the one thing that I, you know, if I told them I'm a pastor, I immediately lost credibility. They had no category for it. But here, you know, here's the thing, um, you know, so now we're in the South, and, you know, to your point of there's there's at least some credibility that comes with the church. I often find that's actually not the case. Mm-hmm. There's a tipping of the hat to the church, um, and but... 
if still, if I lead with I'm a pastor, I lose a lot of credibility because of the title. Mm-hmm. Um, because they see the church as you know an irrelevant force, and where secularization sees it as a dangerous force, um, you know, um, you know, we see it here as an, an irrelevant force. You know, and I have to, I sort of have to. I always call it the conversation killer when they ask, you know, what do you do? And I'm like, oh, here we go. Um, I work with people. Well, what do you do with people? You know, um, well, I'm a pastor. Okay, now the conversation's shut down, and we can't talk about anything. <laughs> Everything's now off the table, right? Yeah. And I think I think this is often the the misconception. I think what I'm trying to do at this point, we're way off topic, um, but it's just moderate expectations a little bit. Hmm. Um, because I think some moderated expectations are in order to to know the landscape that we're dealing with. And then I want to use that as a segue to kind of get us back on track because I think in the world that we're describing, doing theology mm-hmm. is even more important. Yeah. I mean, if we're going to, because I often say, what I want to do is create disciples of Jesus who are so deeply rooted in his gospel that they can then make a visible, lasting difference in the world. Yeah. Right. It's not, I don't, I don't want the retreat. Yeah. But I also want to moderate expectations. So I want to equip people to leave a visible, lasting difference in whatever area of life that they're operating in, whether it be at the highest level of politics or an educational institution across the street that's a ministry of the church, or whether it's raising kids at home, wherever that is, you know, I want them to equip them to leave a visible, lasting difference because I do think that that's a good thing. But, um, but that's going to require deep discipleship, which a big part of is theology. Yeah, I mean, so, like, kind of thinking back to what the original topic was supposed to be, like, I, 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 my, my students at Christ College, I think, get annoyed with me because I, I constantly am bringing them back to, what were, what were the last things that Jesus said, said to us? He, he says, go into all the world and do what? Make to make disciples. And what does it mean to make disciples? Well, he tells us. Baptizing and teaching them all things. Yeah, baptizing and teaching them all things that I've commanded you. And and, and, and if we're doing that, like the uh, C.S. Lewis said that the church, he, he doubts that the church exists for anything. Well, the church would cease to exist if it wasn't for this one thing, that is to make disciples. That, that, that at, at its core, the thing the church should be about is making disciples. And making disciples doesn't just mean um, giving people the right information, yeah. but it's helping them to see um, how, the, how, how that which is true is also good and beautiful. Yeah. And then how that plays itself out into their lives, whatever they're doing. So, so I teach a class called uh, Gospel Church in Australian Culture, uh, second semester every year at, at Christ College. And, and it's funny because I'm the American teaching the Australian culture course. Um, and, but, but I mean, one of, the things that, one, of the, one of the things that we do in that class is, is spend time trying to figure out how do we read and interpret what the culture is trying to tell us? Because, because we believe that everything in culture is trying to teach us something, is trying to catechize us, is trying to get us to believe something about God in the world he's made. Uh, made. So our job then as people that are disciples, and and particularly I'm training people that are going to be ministers, our job is to know how to read that so that we can can say, hey, here's what's true about the message that's just been given to you, but here's how it's only half a truth. Yeah. 
Um, and here's how, here's how the gospel actually gives you the whole truth here. I mean, this is what Bob Inc. would talk about when he talks about common grace, that, yeah. that in culture, in the world, in everything that's, in everything that, 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 uh, that, that's around us, there, there's grains of grace there that, that we can find and we can go, oh, I see how that's telling me something about God that's good, true, and beautiful. Yeah. And you want to grab hold of those things. So, so part of learning how to part, part of learning how to do theology every day and be an everyday theologian is to, as Jesus says, learn to read the times. I, I mean, Jesus is critiquing the, the Pharisees, isn't, isn't he? That uh, and he says, and he says, look, you can look out at the sky and you can say, oh, it's going to rain, but you can't see. You don't see how this is like how what's happening right now is about me yeah. and, and about what I'm doing. And, and part of our job is to help students go. Okay, where what's happening outside? Where do I find myself in God's story at this moment? And then how do I how do I respond faithfully in that? And I think in this, this is what I keep I press almost everybody uh, I can to get an ear with is the the culture is so changing so quickly that if you are not purposely developing a deep theology from God's word you will not know how to navigate any moment in faithfulness to him. Um, and in, instead, what you'll end up doing is cherry-picking a few social issues, developing some views around that, and then getting swept up with the grander story that the cultures, that the tide is moving you along with um, and not being aware of, uh, of what the tide is um, and how the Bible tells us a different story. Because is, the other thing I was thinking about, too, as you are talking about common grace, is that, you know, that it, you know this is all that the, the world around us, this is all that anyone is doing, is they're just taking the data of Revelation, putting it together. Mm-hmm. Whether that's the non-Christian world is taking the data of common um, grace um, and general Revelation and putting it together in all the wrong ways, or whether it is by the power of the Spirit in union with Jesus, the, the church is putting it together in ways it's faithful to Jesus and then interpreting the world around us rightly. Um, you just can't get away from doing this. And it's like, this is just what we do all the time. Yeah. Um, and yeah. so let me, let me pivot a little bit more here. Um, if you were, if someone was just kind of listening to this and thought, okay, you sold me on it. I want to start doing some study of theology. Um, and but I don't know where to start. I don't know what to do. Can you give me something? What would you give to them? Depends. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, there's there's a lot of spots that you can start. Um, I mean, I think that Bavink's guidebook is a great is a is a great spot to to start if you're going to do that. Uh, Michael Horton's Pilgrim Theology mm-hmm. is a good one volume systematic theology, uh, kind of thinking through these things. Um, R.C. Sproul has a book called Every, uh, Everybody's a Theologian, I think it is, that, mm-hmm. that's, uh, that's worth picking up and, and reading. I, I mean, um, yeah, I mean, those would be some good spots to start. I, I think looking at, I mean, R.C. is one of those guys that, like, if you haven't read theology, you kind of just have, and you're, and you, and you're, and you're reformed curious, you kind of have to start with him. Just I call him the gateway drug. He is. He is. He, I mean, he's one of those people that like, even when you have critiques of him, you feel like you can't critique him. Cause you know that like he brought you into the, he brought you in and you're like, it'd be like kind of critiquing grandpa for being a little crazy here and there. And you're like, well, it's grandpa. What are you going to do? So, I mean, I, I, I think RC's book, uh, everybody's a theologian and, um, and, 
uh, Horton and then, um, as well as guidebook is a good, those are good spots to start. We, um, um, thankful Cam, <clears throat> I, I would complain to Cam for years about the fact that there was no good systematic theology for high school students. Um, and Cam being the good theologian, a lover of the church and a good friend, went out and translated uh, Bob Inc.'s guidebook that was written as a systematic theology for high school students, and we're now using it um, in our upper school and our junior class to teach them um, in our junior Bible class. Keaton, how have you found the students responding? Is that have you found have, have you seen that be accessible to them? Do, can they employ it, understand it, read it? By and large, yes. I mean, you know. Sometimes with with reading comprehension, the the less and less we read, the less and less we will read. Um, and so sometimes when they come to Bob Inc., you know, and they read, it, they can't understand most things as they're they're trying to digest it a lot of the times. But I've been shocked at how often they've come to something that you know I had never even heard of until seminary, a theological concept that was a huge paradigm shifter for me. And you know, they'll read it and go. Oh yeah, that makes total sense. Yeah, right, and so um, that's been incredibly encouraging for for them to understand. You know, what took me nearly three years of of an MDiv to to really wrap my mind around Van Til's concept of the creator creature distinction, and they read a chapter of Bob Inc. and are like, "Well, yeah, no, that, that's just the Bible, Mister Paul." Um, <laughs> And He's so, just a little slower than that. Yeah, now. yeah, I'm just not as smart as y'all, I guess. We, we, we weren't going to say it, but... <laughs> but I've been shocked at, at how um, they so many of them have read it and gone, this this makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, even some that have, uh, you know, a church background or, or something like that, that have, you know, they've heard a lot of the, the, the doctrines of the faith, and then they read Bob Inc. and said, you know, that part of of theology never made sense to me until mm. I read this paragraph in Bob Inc. And, and now it makes a lot of sense. I get what he's saying now. I, I have seen a growing hunger for deep theology amongst high school students and 20-somethings. Um, and and I'm, this is my observation. They inhabit a world that is so complex, ever-changing, difficult to be a follower of Jesus in, that they're they're looking and saying the only thing that will sustain us in this world is really deep, consistently biblical theology that speaks to us about the riches of Jesus, and nothing else will. And it ex- that genuinely excites me um, about the the coming future. And when I hear the students, not all the students love the rigor of high school, um, but the students who and there's a lot of them that have benefited greatly from from Bob Inc. in Keaton's class. A lot of them, uh, their their faith is inflamed, mm, um, yeah. and I get excited mm. for some of that. Like, gosh, you're years ahead of where many people would have been because of your exposure to yeah. this stuff. So. Yeah. Thanks, Cam. It's a pleasure. It's, it's actually been one of those things that, for me, has become a uh, kind of a pet project, and and uh, it's it, it's where when I write th- when I when I'm thinking about writing things at a uh, popular level, my my new aim is to aim it at the uh, at the 
educated high schooler or the young adult because because the more I thought about it, the more I'm just like, there's not good theology that's written at that level for mm-hmm. uh, that doesn't go like, hey, dudes, let's go skateboarding. <laughs> um, I, and that's just not me. So like, so I'm not. So it would be lying to students if I wrote that way. Um, but I, I I feel like it's such a it's such an important part and such an important season in the life that that Bavink's example has been for me an example that that I'm like okay I need to this is where I want to aim when I'm writing something more popular. Yeah. And and you've it's it's the you know you're translating so um, the the ideas and the original language is Bavink's but the readability of it is yours and Craig Parker's and y'all have done a great job. Um, and so I would, you know, I would, that's my, almost been my go-to when I want to put something into someone's hand. So here, you need a resource. Mm. Um, it is, it is guidebook. Yeah. Um, and I, mm. you know, if any, um, the probably three meals that you've eaten off of the income from guidebook is at least two of those are due to me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I appreciate it. Greg and I have often said that we, it's it, uh, it's one of those experiences of of doing something and then kind of putting it out into the wild and wondering what happened to it. So it's always really encouraging to hear like how people are using it for us because because for us we we just we just are interested in hearing from people like what what did you do with this because we are we are really interested our our, our primary interest is in translating things for the church um, when it, when it comes down to it like we we. We want to translate the works that Bavink has done that he wrote for the church, and, and this one. So, doing this one in particular was kind of a labor of love for us. Well, I'm, and I'm going to commend the next one to you along these lines because um, you're also retranslating the wonderful works of God, um, mm. and um, I that is a book that I have put into a number of people's hands just because I wanted to introduce them to Bavink, and I wasn't sure what they would do with it or mm. if they would ever crack it open again. Um, but just so that if God moved them and the Spirit um, kind of moved them towards wanting to study theology, at least they'd have something reliable to grab off the table or their shelf or the box. I have been so encouraged and excited at the number of people who I've given that to who have come back and said, this is amazing. They're typically not readers. They're not studiers but they are being drawn into and find it incredibly helpful. Um, and so I think some of that's one to say um, that, that most people I find that when they begin to do the work of theology, find there are riches there they didn't think were there. And that when they do that with Bavink in particular, they find him to be incredibly helpful to cultivating their heart towards God and their mind towards him as well. So I'm encouraged that you're reworking that, um, and that that's my pitch for if you're looking to get off the couch and start reading something, grab yeah. a guidebook of the Christian religion. Um, if you want a little something more robust, um, grab the wonderful works of God. Yeah. Um, in, and, a couple, in a couple years, when it comes in out. a couple years when it comes out, and, yeah. and if you really yeah. if you really want to get me excited, um, and come sit down and we'll read um, the Reformed Dogmatics together, which I devoted my last sabbatical, not the one I just got off of, but my last sabbatical to working all the way through, um, and was one of the the richest endeavors I've been. I think one of the things I've realized about Bavink, um, and you know, I've had this discussion, is once I started reading Bavink, I was like, oh, 
This is where all those people got these ideas. <laughs> <laughs> there's, 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 there are there are a few theologians that I've gone back and looked at, and I'm like, oh, you just translated Bavink and put it in your and put it in a, and put it in your book as if it's yours. <laughs> Interesting. Back back when plagiarism wasn't a thing. <laughs> <laughs> but I think you know I think that just illustrates how useful he is, and that mm. that if you're looking to get started, he is a good place mm. to get started because he has been so accessible to so many people yeah. and been so helpful. That he really is this hidden figure that few people know about who has inf- such, such tremendous influence. Um, on the modern church that you don't realize, but you can really start grabbing people who have helped you. And if you follow it far enough back, you'll find Bob and along the way. Mm. Um, Cam, what's your favorite theological book? The one I'm reading now. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I I mean, so my son's name is Calvin, so we can probably go with the Institutes. I I love the Institutes. I love, I, I love Augustine city of God. Um, I do really love uh, I, I love um, Bob Inc.'s sacrifice of praise, which I also translated with Greg. Um, but if you're gonna if you're gonna have make me if you're gonna pin me down on what my favorite one is, it's probably Calvin's Institutes, um, which is kind of cheating because it's four books, <laughs> not quite as long as Bob Inc.'s. No. Um, <clears throat> what uh, if you were to say your um, what is your what would be your greatest dream for the church in America today? Mm. Now that you've been away for a, a couple <laughs> years or five years now, you know, it gives you some perspective. Yeah. Um, and you kind of looking back, what would be your greatest dream for the church in America today? I think recapturing a vision of what it means to be the glorious body of Christ. Um, the, the body of Christ is a glorious thing. And, and capturing a vision for what that means, um, what it means to be both um, at the same time as, the, as, as, part, as, as members of the universal church, the church both militant and triumphant. Um, I, I think that it... I think that recapturing a, a a vision of the the truth uh, of what the church is, um, the the goodness of the church being the church, and the beauty of of that uh, would radically transform how we think about um, how we think about corporate worship, um, how we think about our witness in the world, how we think about our engagement with society. Um, how we think about our uh, our love for one another and our love for our neighbors. I, I, I'm convinced that uh, we live in a time where, um, like Luther in uh, during the Reformation and, and justification, uh, where, where a theology of justification had been lost in the church, I, I think we live in a time where a theology of the church is lost, and we don't actually know what the church is and what the church is supposed to be about. Um, and, and so I, I think my, 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 my hope and my prayer, and, and this is, I mean, this is for the uh, church in America, but I, I, I even think about the church in Australia as I, as I minister there, my hope and my prayer is that we recapture a vision for what, for what the church is and what we should be about. 
Well, you have been listening to For the Church, a conversation with Paul Joyner and Keaton Paul, missing John Kelly today with our guest, Cam Clausing. If if you have ideas for uh, future episodes, please send us an email or a message. You can find out more about Zion Church at zioncolumbia.org. And please visit us on a Sunday morning at 930 for worship.